KPFS Studios in Berkeley. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. The protests against the eviction of Palestinian families from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, the police attack on worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the new indiscriminate bombing in Gaza have once again shown the Israeli settler colonial and ethnic cleansing for what it really is. With this, the Palestinian struggle for social justice and liberation has entered a new phase. Palestinians from inside 48, as well as the West Bank and Gaza, are all coming together and coalescing to resist the complete erasure of their homeland in Palestine. This week, Professor Bashara Dumani reflects on the significance of the latest criminal assault on Gaza and puts the latest incidents into historical context 73 years after the beginning of the Nakba as the long agonizing ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the relentless expansionism of the so-called Jewish state continues unabated. Bashara Dumani is the inaugural Mahmoud Darwish Professor of Palestinian Studies at Brown University, the first chair of its kind dedicated to this field of study. He is also founding director of Brown University's Center for Middle East Studies and founder of New Directions for Palestine Studies. He is the author of the new book, Family Life in the Ottoman Mediterranean, A Social History and he's currently working on the modern history of the Palestinians through the social life of a stone. He spoke with Khalil Bendeep. A few days ago, Bashara, was the Nakba's 73rd anniversary, and, and still Palestine's not free. Indeed, Israeli expansionism only shows signs of getting worse. It's not slowing down at all. Situate briefly for us the current state of this struggle. I mean, we... We've seen all sorts of things happen over the past few years. It's gotten even worse under Trump, but now under Biden, doesn't look that much brighter either. Tell us a little bit where things are in a general way, and then we'll go into deeper questions. Sure. First of all, it's great to be back on this program, a great program that's been going on for a long time. Hello to everyone in the audience. So, big question. Well, I would say that the situation has never been worse. It's true. And in many ways, it's never been better. So it's never been worse because colonization of Palestine, the dispossession and displacement of the Palestinians continues apace. And Israel seems to be stronger than ever, not just militarily, not just in terms of its continued support from whether Democratic or Republican administrations, but also because it has made inroads in alliances, formal alliances now, with several Arab countries. And indeed, in some European countries, the government seemed to be going out of their way to criminalize pro-Palestinian activity. We have unprecedented efforts in this regards in France, for example. Yes. To a certain extent in Germany. So in, in that sense, it's never been worse. Indeed, I think one reason that the world was taken by surprise with this latest uprising by the Palestinians is that people thought it was so bad that they would never be a time when the Palestinians will ever raise their heads again. It's as if this struggle is over. But it's never been better because obviously it's not over, is it? 
Palestinian resistance to their continued and ongoing systematic uh, dispossession and displacement has a long history. So many of us are not surprised that this continues. But I think it's fair to say that we are witnessing a somewhat of a special moment. Indeed, maybe too early to tell, but we could be looking at a, a new fork in the road, a third intifada, so to speak. This is because something very unusual has happened. Palestinians everywhere have converged and unified themselves as a single political body without the help, guidance, or support of their leaderships, official leaderships. So just this past week, you saw the three major segments of the Palestinian population. They were mobilized. All mobilized. So one major segment, which has over half the Palestinian population, these are the people in exile, refugees, etc., outside the borders of Mandate Palestine. Just this past week, we saw major marches on the borders from Syria towards the Golan Heights, Jordan towards the bridge borders with Palestine, and in Lebanon. These marches may have been symbolic and not sustained for a long period of time, but they showed an act of mobilization by that major segment of the Palestinian population. And of course, you have the Palestinians living under occupation, whether in Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza, fighting in a variety of ways for their rights. And you have Palestinians who are inside the Green Line, so to speak, also mobilizing in every neighborhood and every city and every village. And all at the same time, and all using a very wide range of resistance tactics from non-cooperation to civil disobedience to active demonstrations and, of course, also to organize violence and of a military sort to a certain extent from Gaza. So you have a contrast here an ongoing settler colonial project that seems to be stronger than ever, and a Palestinian resistance that has defied all expectations and saying that it's done for when it's not. So you have these two trends at play that are very visible. It's like the old uh, saying, <laughs> tale of two cities, you know, it was the best of times, the worst of times, and a resistible force bearing down upon an unmovable object. On the one hand, as you said, there's this increasing isolation of Palestine, even the Arab world, where so many countries now are just normalizing their relations, albeit against popular sentiment, uh, mobilizing their relations with Israel, legislation in the U.S. and probably some in, in Europe against trying to ban BDS sentiment on campuses. And on the other hand, the steady disengagement of younger of the younger generation, both in the U.S. and Europe, from this traditional blind support of Israel. So which of these two trends do you see dominating in the, in the mid to long term? It's a complex question, but are you hopeful? At this point, with all this misery we're seeing, I mean, it's difficult to be hopeful when you see dozens of people being sacrificed. Well, I am hopeful for a variety of reasons, one of which is that the younger generation seems to be far more progressive, active, and practical in terms of finding new ways to resist and change than I would have ever hoped. I see them all the time, all over the world. 
as you can tell from the outpouring on social media, there's another world that we don't see in mainstream media coverage of what's going on. A world full of very creative young people. So you asked me if I'm optimistic. Uh, I am. I was saying that it's because of this young generation that we see uh, doing incredible things out there. They're lighting a thousand little fires everywhere. And they're connecting to global causes for social justice. And I think they're helping to turn the tide. But I would go back and say there's a contrast here as well when you're talking about the United States. On the one hand, the U.S. government seems to be doing what it always has done, full diplomatic, military, financial support of Israel, without which Israel cannot do what it's doing today. So you heard President Obama saying Israel has the right to defend itself. You saw Biden today, okay, 734 million in military sales to Israel right in the middle of their attacks on, on Gaza. Yes. You saw the United States at the United Nations being the only one out of 15 members of the General Security Council to not support a statement on this issue. In fact, they blocked the issuing of a statement three times just this past week. So you have that. And you have the media being part of the problem, not the solution in this case, with this language, vocabulary, and framing, all designed in many ways to obfuscate what the real issues are and effectively erasing and dehumanizing the Palestinians. So you do have all of that. At the same time, I don't recall that ever in the past there was a politician with the same stature as Bernie Sanders, for example. That's right. right. In uh, the New York Times, in which he really laid out a very strong case for why the Palestinian question is one that is primarily of social justice and effectively destroying that wall that has long existed inside U.S. public discourse that made people, many progressive people, progressive on everything except Palestine. So the PEP, progressive except for Palestine, is having a very hard time sustaining itself. If you are a person in this country who is supportive of social justice issues, Palestine is your issue. And we saw that in the uh, Bernie Sanders op-ed. We also saw one of the figures of a resurgent and insurgent Jewish community in the United States who are not accepting the official position of the United States or Israel and are calling for social justice in louder and louder voices. We're all familiar with Jewish Voices for Peace and other organizations. But I found that the Peter Beinart op-ed on how the Sheikh Jarrah incidents are really very much part of the Palestinian right of return and calling for a right of return, which is unusual. If I understood that article correctly, he seemed to be making the case that what's happening in Jerusalem has everything to do with an ongoing dispossession of Palestinians and that they have the right to return. And that is not a position that's ever been acceptable to Israel or the United States. And I can give other examples of official voices, including senators and, and congresspeople, in numbers, okay, they're small, but larger than ever before. And, of course, movements for social justice in this country, from Black Lives Matter to all struggles among indigenous people, are very upfront and very strong on the question of Palestine. So you have, again, this contrast. 
These are things we would never have seen 10, 15 years ago. It's all, all the more remarkable when you consider who is making these statements. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I remember in 2014, was walking in lockstep with the rest of, of Senate. He, he supported uh, replenishing uh, Israel's arsenal in the middle of the, that onslaught that happened in Gaza. He changed very recently, I mean, it's with the first presidential campaign when he noticed that his base, the young people, were pushing in that direction. It's a remarkable transformation on his part. And this guy, Baynard, who you just mentioned as well, used to be very pro, very pro-Israel, and now he's, he's also come around. So these are hopeful developments. And to see a number of congressmen and women, mostly the squad, the OCA and Tlaib and, and Omar and Presley, take the courageous stances they, they are is, is also uh, quite encouraging. Yeah, I mean, the needle has to move a lot more than this to make a real difference but it is encouraging and once more as we've seen real change does really take place in the region itself yes this is not to say that the u.s is not complicit and an enabler of israeli policies but and that uh, this is not to say that the united states is not an important arena for a struggle for justice uh, quite the contrary nevertheless it's the palestinians who have on their shoulders carried the major burden. They only have their bodies in many instances to use. And they've, they are paying a very high price for this resistance and under very, very difficult circumstances. But I think in that sense, they model for a lot of people what it means never to give up, never to lose hope and to fight against incredible odds. The past decade has also seen a number of Arab regimes destabilized by popular discontent, about half the countries in, in that region. Do you feel that that Arab Spring, so-called, uh, has had any repercussions in Palestine? Some people say it's actually the Palestinians who inspired the rest of the Arab world with their intifada. First and foremost, it's really important to recognize that there is a relationship most people, when they think about Palestine, uh, Israel, they think about as if they're in some sort of a bottle all by themselves. The only other connection is somehow to the world community or the United States. When in fact, Palestine has been and continues to be, and the Palestinians have been and continue to be, part and parcel of a regional social, economic, political order of which they are very important players, which they inspire and are inspired by. So... It's very important to realize, I think, that the Palestinian cause is one that uh, resonates very highly, not just globally, but especially regionally, and especially in the countries around Palestine that are connected to it, such as Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And the various ways in which young people are taking the lead, in which social media is a important arena of struggle in which there's all sorts of creative forms of mobilization. All these things are not unique to Palestine. They're part and parcel of a larger movements for social change in that region itself. And we can only ignore that at our own peril, really. The, the role of the social media you just mentioned has been crucial, and this at the time when some of the social media giants 
themselves are trying to crack down on free expression and, and support of Palestinian rights. Facebook and Twitter have been censoring a lot of those voices. But you were also talking earlier about traditional media and their coverage, their, usually, their usual consistent pro-Israel bias. Tell us more about that. Is there, do you see uh, any subtle changes there as well over the years and decades? Is there a little bit more of a interest in, in what actually happens to the Palestinians as opposed to just always showing the ostensibly symmetrical picture where, well, both sides are crazy, they're both violent, etc. I think that corporate media of the kinds of whether television or newspapers, etc., have carried on a kind of a convoluted coverage of what's going on. They seem to have tried, the editorial committees of these places seem to have tied themselves up in kind of knots trying to come up with words, vocabulary, framing that obfuscates what's going on. So, for example, the New York Times talks about cross-border conflict as if Gaza is some other independent state <laughs> and not really effectively occupied by Israel surrounded and under siege. That is a deliberate choice of words in order to justify what Israel is doing. This is not an accidental choice of words. I can imagine many meetings taking place in which they try to figure out what words they should choose in order to give a particular framing to this conflict. This is just but one of many, many examples. Uh, the good news is that corporate media has had to change as a result of pressures before. We see that with uh, racial reckoning in, this, in the country. The New York Times and others have started to publish many, many more stories to try to make up for the awful coverage they've had before on these issues and try to take the lead, in fact, and trying to showcase themselves as somehow beacons of uh, wokeness. And anybody who expected that this was something that would spill over when it comes to Palestine and Palestinians was rudely awakened from that illusion to read the coverage in the media is to remember that the world that existed before the last few years of reckoning continues to exist for the Palestinians. So uh, why do you think, speaking of the media, just yesterday uh, Israel bombed an entire building that was housing Al Jazeera and AP. What's the significance of that? Of course, officially they say it's because there are some Hamas operatives in the building. The uh, destruction of Al Jala uh, Tower of 12 stories, I believe, that contained at least 13 U.S. agencies, including the largest U.S. news agency, which is Associated Press, as well as Al Jazeera, did not come as a surprise to me. Almost in every major conflict that Israel has been involved in, the press has been targeted deliberately because control of coverage is also a war strategy. In this particular case, uh, Israel made up some excuses that are so unbelievable that even the United States is now questioning Israel about them officially. But, but the point is here that knowledge is power, and, and Israel sent a clear warning to uh, news agencies that they will control the coverage on the ground. Uh, they deprived them uh, literally of a line of sight because 
where that building on Shalat was and its height meant that from its balconies they can uh, cover Gaza and see exactly what's going on in much of Gaza. And that was taken away. Mm. But it was also very heartbreaking because uh, Associated Press and Al Jazeera over the past 15 years or so have compiled perhaps the most important and largest archive of daily life and what's going on in Gaza. And much of that has been destroyed unless they kept copies elsewhere. That archive could have been lost along with the archives of all these other news agencies that has been compiled over the years. So the question of even the existence of archives is at issue here who controls the production of knowledge. So I, I wasn't surprised that the attack on Jalat building. And that's Professor Bashar Dumani speaking with Khalil Bandib. Professor Bashar Dumani is the inaugural Mahmoud Darwish Professor of Palestinian Studies at Brown University. He's also the founding director of Brown University Center for Middle Eastern Studies and the author of the new book, Life in the Ottoman Mediterranean, A Social History. We are in a fundraising period, and I'm going to take a couple of minutes to ask for your pledge of support. Please give us a call at 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. That's 1-800-439-5732. May 15th marked the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba, or the catastrophe. And to create the state of Israel, Zionist forces attacked major Palestinian cities, destroyed more than 530 Palestinian villages. In 1948, approximately 13,000 Palestinians were killed and more than 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes, becoming refugees. If you support this kind of programming, we bring you every week. This is the time to show your support by calling 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. We got many encouraging messages from you last week for covering Palestine. And we want to thank you for calling and clicking and supporting our show. Please go to your phones. As Professor Bashar Dumani reminds us in this interview, corporate media intentionally misinforms and covers the truth about what has been happening in Palestine by framing the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians as a conflict or a land dispute, calling Palestinians Israeli Arabs, and on and on and on. But we at KPFA and Voices of the Middle East and North Africa have always brought you the facts on the ground and the analysis to better understand the ethnic cleansing policy of Israel dating back to 1948. Support KPFA and support Voices of the Middle East and North Africa so we can stay on the air and bring you this kind of programming. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. And we would love for you to become a sustaining member by giving a little every month. That will help us plan for our future. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. 1-800-439-5732 or 
kpfa.org. Again, as Professor Bishara Dumani reminds us in this interview, is that the media is part of the problem, and the mainstream is trying to erase the Palestinians and their struggle. But with social media and Palestinian voices louder than ever, it is becoming more and more difficult for them to do that. When it comes to Palestine and other uh, issues in the Middle East and North Africa, they have provided history and context to the events of the day without fearing that our advertisers are going to cut their support or being told as what to say or how to cover an issue, specifically when it comes to Palestine. This is what accountable journalism looks like. And with your support, we can continue our work at KPFA and, of course, at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. 1-800-439-5732. 5732 or online at kpfa.org. Let's hear more of Khalil's interview with Professor Bishara Dumani. So how do you feel the the current crisis in Israel's uh, electoral situation is influencing this? Is the fact that Bibi Netanyahu is in, in such hot water aggravating the situation? your opinion? The media has been covering, the, let's say, the formal politics of this quite closely. And I'm not sure how much time I'd like to spend on that. But the basic framing is this. On the Palestinian level, uh, the elections that were supposed to have happened uh, by now uh, were canceled by the Palestinian Authority, largely because they decided that they'll probably lose very badly. And that was a form of political suicide, really, by the Palestinian Authority, because it showed that there's a political vacuum here. The leaders can't even trust to have an elections. And that, in many ways, opened up the possibility for other organizations, including Hamas, to step in and fill the vacuum. A similar kind of vacuum was happening in Israel after four elections in the last two years, they're still unable to form a stable government. Two days before the so-called war started, Netanyahu was looking at the very real possibility that uh, the opposition would form a government and that he would be going to jail for corruption charges. And that has saved him completely from that possible fate. And this maps itself out into larger regional politics and the question of Iran and Saudi Arabia, first and foremost, and how all the papers are being reshuffled now that there's no longer a Trump administration, but a new administration under Biden with a somewhat different approach to the region, and people are trying to adjust. That level of politics has been covered quite deeply by the media, and I don't have much more to add to that other than to say Really, we need to look at what's happening on the ground level. And here, let me just say that there are four words that I'd like to to emphasize. One is Sheikh Jarrah. Why is this neighborhood so important? And what's going on? Why would it become a flashpoint? Because Sheikh Jarrah, in many ways, uh, distills and expresses the very essence of the Palestinian condition, which is one of displacement and statelessness. The residents in that neighborhood, which is strategically connected to other Arab neighborhoods in in East Jerusalem and also connects East Jerusalem with the West Bank, the 
attempt to ethically cleanse Palestinians from that neighborhood is shorthand for the continuation of the Nakba in many ways, especially since, as it happens, those most of those families are themselves refugees from 1948 who sought temporary shelter and their permanent shelter in these homes and are have not been allowed by the Israeli government uh, or by any legal regime established by the Israeli government to reclaim their properties that they were forced from. Yet the same government, Israeli government, allows Israeli Jews to reclaim properties that they used to have before 48 or 67. And that's similar in many ways to the question of the law of return. The Israeli government does not allow Palestinians to go back to their lands where they were born, but it does allow any Jew from anywhere in the world to instantly become a citizen. So that systematic legal infrastructure that effectively attempts to dispossess uh, and displaced Palestinians has, is playing out in Sheikh Jarrah as it is in so many places, right in front of people's eyes. And that, in many ways, resonates with all Palestinians, wherever they may be, because that has been their collective fate and the central pillar of their identity. The second word I'd like to introduce is Al-Aqsa Mosque. Why is it that this also became the major flashpoint for what's going on now. So, as, as we all know, the Israeli government has been trying to take over this property one way or another by digging underneath, by controlling interests and exits, by forcibly removing people on a regular basis or preventing them from praying. This is a very important holy site and the most spiritually saturated piece of real estate in the world. And attempts, brazen attempts at changing the status quo such as it is and basically allowing Israeli police and military to raid Al-Aqsa, to wound hundreds of people, to establish control over it has really exposed this fantasy that this piece of real estate can belong exclusively to one group. And I think it resonates with a lot of people all over the world, not just the Muslim world, that uh, Jerusalem is important and cannot be narrowly defined in such a way that it's only really owned by one group. The third is, of course, is Gaza. Gaza is important here because people may remember that 70% of the population in Gaza are themselves also refugees. Yes. So they are living in refugee camps and the most densely populated area practically of the world, 360 square kilometers with a couple of million people in it. And it has become a symbol, really, across the world for what it means to be a disposable population, what it means to be a population living under a rule of exception, saying, you know, you have no rights, you have no exit, you don't even have the right to have rights. Um, So in the case of Gaza, it really is emblematic of so many other places in the world, of so many other stateless populations uh, that are living on the brink of disaster and uh, surrounded by powerful countries with walls and bristling with weapons and who are putting it under siege. So since 2005, Gaza really has been under Israeli military siege. And Israel controls its infrastructure, electricity, water supply, its air. How far they can fish. 
uh, everything. Huh. They are like little fish in a barrel, and Israel is shooting them, really. And there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. So Gaza has become a symbol, just like Al-Aqsa and just like Sheikh Jarrah, of global phenomena that resonate really with a lot of people in this world. And the last is Lid, a city that used to be, of course, a Palestinian city, but one of the major places where in-your-face expulsion took place in 1948. Many famous pictures from that year showing Palestinians forced to leave under the very hot July sun, people dying along the way by the dozens and hundreds, and ending up as refugees. Uh, but a small number of people remained. And Lid is one of those cases that, in which the question of class is really important here, because it's not just a, an issue of erasure of Palestinians. The people who live there are some of the poorest Palestinians who have struggled for a long time for a life of dignity, but at the same time lived under very difficult economic circumstances. And it's not surprising at all that they would be the ones out on the streets in a very big way. And I think that's typical of a kind of a Palestinian underclass inside of the Green Line of 1948 that has just fed up. It's fed up with all the doors being slammed in their faces, economic doors, social doors, health doors, and most recently in the last few years under Netanyahu, a whole series of laws and actions that close all political possibilities as well. Uh, they're looking at the possibility that they may not be able to be in their houses and their neighborhoods much longer. And they took a stand and they have to face Israeli settlers, armed Israeli settlers with the support of their government attacking them. So I think if you take Sheikh Sharrah, Al-Aqsa, Gaza and Lid and understand what's going on on the ground in all these places, you get a better idea of the structural forces that have led to what we see unfolding before us today. And that's Professor Bashara Dumani speaking with Khalil Bendib. We are in a fundraising period, and I'm going to take a couple of minutes to ask you for your pledge of support. 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-5732. If you support the kind of programming we bring you every week, this is the time... To show your support for Voices of the Middle East and North Africa and for KPFA by calling 1-800-439-5732. As again, Professor Bashara Dumani emphasizes in this interview, we need to pay attention to what is going on on the ground to better understand the structural forces that have led to what we see in Palestine today. And that is what we intend to do, and that's what we have been doing for more than a decade on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We have rich archive of shows on Palestine with Palestinian artists, activists, journalists, and scholars such as Professor Dumani himself. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. We cannot do this without you. Also, please consider becoming a sustaining member of KPFA Radio by agreeing to donate a recurring payment of at least $10 a month. 
Not only will you provide KPFA with a predictable and dependable source of income, which will lower our costs and allow us to fund programming and member services, but it just may let us shorten our pledge drive. Plus, monthly recurring donations are the easiest and most convenient way for you to give to KPFA and ensure that our programs receive your support while also letting you set an affordable amount that works within your budget. Choose the monthly donation option when you donate at kpfa.org we have been receiving many encouraging messages from you about our coverage of Palestine. Thank you for all your messages and emails. Please give us a call at 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, or kpfa.org. Again, if you support this program and KPFA, and if you value the coverage of Palestine you're getting here, please do not hesitate to call 1-800-439-5732 or donating online at kpfa.org. Let's hear more of the interview. Israel's job, like every colonial's power before it, has been to divide and rule. And it has done a fairly good job at that, witness the continuing division between Gaza and the West Bank, among other manifestations. You expressed hope on that score earlier. How do you see the Palestinians transcending this difficult problem of unity and unification? The Israelis and their supporters worldwide always seem to be able to rally around the flag, no matter how much hatred they may be among some of the leaders themselves. I don't see anything on the horizon that is concrete and specific in terms of institutionalization of a structure of Palestinian leadership that is unified that has a strategic plan and that knows how to mobilize. There just isn't. That doesn't exist. Having said that, this could be because we are going through a kind of a long transition period towards the fourth phase of the Palestinian national movement to a certain extent. You know, there was a phase before 1948 led mostly by notables and landowners and kind of an urban bourgeoisie. There was a second phase in the 50s after 1948 began by mostly Palestinian, kind of educated, middle-class teachers, engineers, others, many of them from Gaza, and that eventually formed the organizations, Fatah, PFLP, DFLP, others, that took over the PLO and became the face of the Palestinian National Movement after 1967. This second phase was dominated by the figure of the Palestinian refugee carrying a Kalashnikov rifle in Bega Fidei or guerrilla in terms of a people armed struggle in much the same way that we saw anywhere else in the world at that time, from Vietnam to Cuba to elsewhere. So if we move from the figure of the land-owning notable to the figure of the Palestinian refugee, the, the third phase in many ways is the Oslo phase, in which the Palestinian with the suit and tie busy building the institutional, supposedly, infrastructure of a state to be delivered somehow through the peace process, becomes the key figure and a kind of a total amnesia, at least on the part of that leadership towards Palestinians elsewhere, outside of even the Ramallah bubble in many ways. That phase uh, we see is 
ending, which creates new opportunities. So on the one hand, it looks terrible because there's nothing that seems to be out there. On the other hand, this is just the sign of a new set of opportunities and movements which have not yet become very clear. So it's true, we don't see exactly beyond that horizon of the end of something at this point. But there are many things happening on the ground that give you a hint. These last two weeks are a very important example of that. The kinds of struggles that are taking place and the lessons being learned from these struggles are immensely intense. And I don't doubt that eventually, I think, uh, many Palestinians will find a way towards institutionalizing these lessons in the form of a a leadership that, uh, let's say, is up to the moment. Given this slow progress, as you describe it, on the Palestinian side, what do you think Israel's end game is? Is it a continuation of this slow strangulation we've been witnessing over the decades? Or is it a, a more ambitious, more radical escalation of violence in order to provoke some pretext for the completion of the ethnic cleansing that they started in 48 and the, and the expulsion, a wholesale expulsion of entire populations as, as they did back then. I don't know what their endgame is just simply because I don't think there's any single Israeli position. There's tremendous divisions within the country. Of course, we do know that every government has been more right-wing than the one before it. We do know that regardless of whether one is in the left center or right, there seems to be a unity on the question of never allowing the Palestinians to achieve any kind of sovereignty or even to remain in their homes. So yes, the general thrust of the Zionist movement and the kind of political and economic infrastructures built in Israel keeps pushing more and more towards strangulation of Palestinians' political horizons and maybe even to their physical disposition and removal en masse sometime in the future. I don't know what will happen, but I do think that's important to realize that the Palestinians have managed, despite overwhelming asymmetry of power, to remain. And I don't doubt that they're really willing to sacrifice a lot to continue to remain on their lands and even to have the right of return. And that regardless of what plans there may be, or again, is a very fractious society and state in Israel, and I think it's, at least I can't predict what would happen in the future, but I, I think it's possible that the Palestinians will be able to remain and eventually achieve their rights. And within the Green Line, do you see an evolution on the part of the Palestinians who were never left to the 20% of the Israeli population that is Palestinian? What is the general picture there? Do you see more solidarity, more concern, or is this a, a pretty... Because f- you see parties uh, trying on the political level to, to get integrated and and make a difference. What do you see happening there? Uh, There's no doubt that there's a clear trend, a trend towards greater and greater politicization of the population and move away from a kind of an assimilation logic towards a resistance and logic of asserting 
their rights as an indigenous population fighting a settler colonial project. I think that's the way things have been moving for many years now. And it's very possible that this trend will continue. Certainly, the past two weeks have shown an incredible degree of solidarity and like-mindedness among those Palestinians with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. This is a very important part of the Palestinian population. Pundits have been talking for at least a generation now, but certainly in the last 10, 15 years that they have a it's their turn to take leadership of the Palestinian National Movement. And I think that, I don't know if things happen this way, it's not like somebody does this by turns, but we did see the second phase being mostly based outside of Palestine, the third phase based mostly inside of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And now it's expanding in an unstoppable way, I think, towards the rest of historic Palestine. So I'm hopeful in that regard as well. Is there anything else that you would like to address? I would just add that it's very important for listeners to make the question of Palestine and the Palestinians a part of their everyday social justice activism. It should be everywhere and everything that they do. And in doing it, the central Palestinians themselves, their voices, their experiences, and not speak necessarily about them or for them, but try to bring them into the conversation. I think that would be very important. Welcome back. I am Malihera Zazan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley. KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. We are in a fundraising period and I'm going to take the rest of the hour, about 12-13 minutes, to ask for your pledge of support. Please give us a call at 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. Again, as Professor Bashara Dumani emphasized in this interview, we need to pay attention to what is going on on the ground to better understand the structural forces that have led to what we see in Palestine today. That is what we intend to do in the next few weeks, and that's what we have been doing for more than a decade on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We have a rich archive of shows on Palestine with Palestinian artists, activists, journalists, thinkers and scholars, such as Professor Damani. We have updated the audio collection that goes out to everyone who donates at any level. You will receive Telling the Story, an audio collection including an event with Angela Davis titled A Lifetime of Revolution, recorded at University of Southern California in 2015, where Angela recounts the story of her life of activism. Telling the story also includes a two-part interview with Al Young, former poet laureate of California and longtime friend of KPFA, who just passed in 2021 at the age of 81. And we added one more piece of audio an important one to the telling the story collection and it's called the idea of palestine speech by professor edward said in this speech edward said professor of literature at columbia university and public intellectual explains how 
Israel cannot defeat the idea of Palestine. This was recorded at the town hall in New York City on July 25, 1982. Professor Saeed describes the idea of Palestine as a desire for a community of people to be able to live together, tolerant of each other, and possessing self-determination. Edward Said frequented the KPFA airwaves before his death at the age of 67 in 2003, and this speech was given during the 1982 war on Lebanon. And it continues to be relevant today. 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, or kpfa.org. Palestine is the social justice issue of our time. And there is transnational solidarity with Palestinians. And we have seen a massive shift in thinking and talking about Palestine. Here at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, we have always brought you the voices of the Palestinians, including our today's guest, Professor Bashara Dumani, who's been a close friend of the show. 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-5732. Or kpfa.org. We at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa are not just filling the gaps. We are correcting the coverage and history about Palestine. And we want to make sure you know the facts and realities, not just some concluded framing aimed at the spreading misinformation and confusion. It is not Palestine-Israel conflict. It's not a border dispute with Gaza. And the violent removal of Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah, where they have lived since 50s, is not a real state dispute. If you like and appreciate our fact-based reporting and analysis, which is informed by history, this is the time to show your support. 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-5732. Or kpfa.org. We have been getting many encouraging messages from you about our coverage of Palestine, and we want to thank you for calling and sending us emails and supporting the program. 1 800 439 5732. Please give us a call. 1 800 439 5732. 1 800 439 5732 or kpfa.org, where you can go and pledge securely online. Again, KPFA has added Professor Edward Saeed's lecture to its audio collection, Telling the Story, which includes an event with Angela Davis titled Lifetime of Revolution, recorded at USC in 2015. Also, it includes an interview, a two-part interview, with Al Young, former poet laureate of California and a longtime friend of KPFA who just passed in April of this year at the age of 81. And as I said, uh, we just added one more piece of audio to the telling story collection, The Idea of Palestine, a speech by Edward Said. Anyone who donates at KPFA at any amount will receive Telling the Story audio collection. And we would like to urge you to become a sustainer, to give a little every month. Because of the pandemic, some who are listening to KPFA, they cannot give this time. But if you can, please give a little more for those who can't. 
1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. KPFA's goal in this fund drive is to raise $450,000. At KPFA, these funds don't come from corporations, but listeners' support plus solidarity. Help us continue as a community institution. Donate today by calling 1-800-439-5732 or go online and pledge securely at kpfa.org. Also, online donations are always the best route to support KPFA. Pledging at kpfa.org on your computer, phone, or any device means a lower overhead for KPFA so that more of your funds go directly to supporting our work, kpfa.org, or you always can call 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732. Horrific figures and images are coming out of Gaza. More than 220 people have been killed, 1,500 injured, 58,000 people have fled their homes because of the fear of being bombed by Israel. Over 60 children have been killed. Israeli airstrikes have destroyed sewage systems, sending wastewater through the streets. A desalination plant providing water to 250,000 people is offline. There is shortage of electricity. The only laboratory in Gaza that processes coronavirus tests was damaged by an Israeli airstrike. Schools have been bombed. A beloved bookstore has been destroyed in Gaza. And in the midst of this terror and carnage, this is the email that CNN sends to its staff. Quote, we need to be transparent about the fact that the Ministry of Health in Gaza is run by Hamas. Consequently, when we cite latest casualty numbers and attribute to the health ministry in Gaza, we need to include the fact it is Hamas-run. As an example, they say, latest figures from Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health put the number of casualty at such and such figure. So this is what you're getting from mainstream media in the United States. 1-800-439-5732 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. May 15th marked the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba, or the catastrophe for Palestinians. To create the State of Israel, Zionist forces attacked major Palestinian cities, destroyed more than 530 Palestinian villages. In 1948, approximately 13,000 Palestinians were killed and more than 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes, becoming refugees. And it is our role as journalists to bring you facts, information, and history that enables you and us to understand the events of today better. 1-800-439-5732 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. KPFA launched in 1949 with the goal of promoting peace, both interpersonal and international, by means of ethical, intellectual, and artistic integrity. And that is what we are practicing at KPFA. KPFA has remained ever vigilant since then thanks to the generosity and support of our listeners. If you are able, please make a donation to KPFA today at kpfa.org. 
by calling 1-800-439-5732 and give the gift that gives back to the community. That's the cost of independence that comes directly from you. Support us now, kpfa.org, 1-800-439-5732. Again, we have updated the audio collection that goes out to everyone who donates at any level with a speech by Edward Said called The Idea of Palestine. Professor Edward Said died at the age of 67 in 2003. And in this speech, Edward Said, who was professor of literature at Columbia University and a public intellectual, explains how Israel cannot defeat the idea of Palestine. This was recorded at the town hall in New York City on July 25, 1982. And he describes the idea of Palestine as a desire for a community of people to be able to live together, tolerant of each other, and possessing self-determination. 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732. If you care about social justice, Palestine is your issue, and we make sure we bring you the facts, information, and analysis to put Palestine in historical context. 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. Again, I want to urge you to become a sustaining member by agreeing to donate a recurring payment of at least $10 a month. Not only will you provide KPFA with a predictable and dependable source of income, which will lower our cost and allow us to fund programming and member services, it will let us shorten our pledge drive, which I'm sure you'll be happy about. 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-439-5732. Choose the monthly donation option when you donate at kpfa.org today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.